0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for July 13th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today we're also joined by Peter Marks, the Director of the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, or CBER, at the Food and Drug Administration. Peter's a physician scientist who led the adult leukemia service at Yale before he became Chief Clinical Officer there. He joined CBER in 2012 and became director in 2016. CBER has become particularly prominent during the COVID-19 outbreak because it's responsible for regulating vaccines. Peter also helped establish Operation Warp Speed, the federal program that provided support and funding for what became the successful development of COVID vaccines. Peter, I know that COVID has been taking a tremendous amount of your time and that of your staff, but before we talk about the current epidemic, I wanted to ask you about how the whole process works. I know you engage with researchers and manufacturers even before clinical trials. So how do you work with vaccine developers during that preclinical research period?
1: Thanks very much. First, thanks for having me today. One of the things for vaccines that we do at FDA is we really have a whole of development approach, looking from everything from promising preclinical data right out through our post-market surveillance. And so we tend to take advantage of the fact that we have research labs in the area of vaccines working on various pathogens, and those individuals are generally aware of what is going on in the world of vaccine development. And we become aware of vaccine sponsors, sometimes they're academic institutions, sometimes they're small companies, sometimes they're large companies that seem to have promising data, and we will sometimes invite those entities in have a conversation about their technologies. And we can sometimes be encouraging if there are things that are looking promising. And it's also very informative for us because we have an idea of where the field is headed as we see other applications coming in. So I think it's really by trying to keep a pulse on where things are in early development, and that's done in part with the assistance of those who conduct vaccine research in our laboratories.
2: So Peter, one of the issues that certainly developers have is trying to figure out exactly what would be approvable. What are the criteria that the FDA will eventually use to evaluate their products? How do you help developers with those considerations?
1: We try to do that in two ways. One is on uh, essentially a cross development program manner, and that is through issuance of guidance, guidance documents or documents that the agency puts out that offers people developing products advice on kind of the general considerations of what we'd like to see if we're going to approve a product or what we're looking for in products that ultimately are approved. We did that for COVID-19 vaccines, and in fact, we did something for the first time with the COVID-19 vaccines, which we actually put an expected efficacy that we wanted to see on COVID-19 vaccines, which we said we wanted to see 50% efficacy of a vaccine with a lower bound of 95% confidence interval of 30% for a vaccine to kind of meet the bar. We did that because we felt that we needed to give people some idea of what we were looking for. So that's for all manufacturers. So all people developing products so they can see what we're looking at. But then we also work individually with those that are bringing products forward in order to have a conversation about how they might best show the effectiveness and the safety of their products. And that does change with time, right? Because what might have been possible when you could do a randomized placebo-controlled trial might not be possible at a later point in time when doing that same trial might prove much more difficult or impossible because you might not find, in the case of COVID-19, for instance, you might not find SARS coronavirus to naive adults in any significant numbers to be able to start from scratch depending on what type of trial you're doing. So we try to give both kind of cross-program and individual program advice.
3: And Peter, as you think about that, how do you think about the platform technology versus the specific immunogen, which often can be evolved?
1: Yeah, really great question. Because what we're seeing, right, are there are certain platforms in the case of COVID-19, we've seen how useful the mRNA platform has been. And we've seen in some cases how certain protein-based manufacturing technologies can be used like platforms. We've seen certain vectors. So We can think about the platforms that help us in some ways in terms of the confidence we have that the product will be able to be produced at the end of the day. That doesn't, though, tell us a lot always about whether the product will actually be effective. And I think one of the things that we need to be careful we don't fall into, because I get asked this a lot, is, oh, well, great, mRNA vaccines, they're the solution to vaccine technology for the future, right? And unfortunately, I have to remind people that there are a fair number of infectious diseases that people have tried to treat using mRNA vaccines where the technology just didn't work really well. And instead, in some cases, a live viral vector technology worked well for that particular infectious disease that wasn't covered by an mRNA vaccine and vice versa. So I think we have to be careful that we understand that for us at FDA, platforms help us a lot on the manufacturing end, because when we feel really comfortable with a platform, it allows us to know that, well, if this vaccine comes forward, it will be able to be manufactured in a robust manner with high quality. And that's very reassuring, especially if you need lots of doses. So that to me is one of the nice things about platforms. I don't think though we should become overly confident in any one platform being able to be the total solution, because I don't think there really is one. I think we have to have a variety of platforms in our armamentarium to be able to deal with the incredible myriad numbers of infectious diseases that exist. Now, I became a hematologist because I couldn't remember enough of the different bugs. I I actually always admired infectious disease doctors. I kind of was an infectious disease wannabe. And so taking care of leukemia patients, you do get to do a fair amount of dealing with infectious disease, but boy, we have a lot of pathogens to deal with.
2: Peter, do the platforms help give you some confidence in safety as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly correct. Thank you for asking that because that is exactly correct. And it's why in some ways, for instance, you really feel, because of the backbone, perhaps, on some of these platforms, if it's a viral-vectored platform, or uh, even for the mRNA vaccines, it does give you the confidence that, although it is possible formally, that there could be some interaction between the insert that you put in to cover the specific infectious disease and the platform you're using that could lead to some you know, unintended toxicity, or there could be some cross-reactivity from the insert that you're using specific to the infectious disease. Having a platform that you feel comfortable with really is helpful, because it does take out one entire piece of the concern from what you're dealing with and makes you feel more confident as you move forward. Again, it's not complete reassurance, but it does provide some significant reassurance as you take a vaccine forward.
0: So how much of a role does the FDA have in the design of clinical trials?
1: For FDA's role in the design of clinical trials, it really varies depending on a variety of factors. And those factors include the type of the sponsor, whether it's a commercial sponsor, an academic sponsor, or a government sponsor, we might be more or less involved. And also depends upon the nature of the trial, whether it's an early stage trial, a pivotal trial, or it could be an expanded access program to provide patients access to a drug or a vaccine. And generally, the more critical to a development program or for patient access a clinical trial is, the more involved we tend to get. So it's true that in terms of phase three clinical trials, we tend to put a lot of thought into those and provide a lot of input because you're generally going to have the most number of people involved in participating in the trials. They have the most riding on them. And so the agency puts a fair amount of effort in them, we also will put a fair amount of effort into clinical trials when we have situations like the COVID-19 pandemic, where the outcome of those trials are really critical for public health. And we can put a fair amount of effort in, and that includes a really great group of statisticians who are very well versed in modern statistical methodologies, including you know adaptive clinical trial designs bayesian designs those tend to get used more early on but still they're very fluent in what needs to happen here and advice that we need to give sponsors
2: so peter that means that just so that our listeners understand the FDA is somewhat directive when it comes to these late stage clinical trials that could result in approval or authorization of vaccines
1: we are suggestive but not necessarily directive. There are agreements that we make with sponsors called special protocol assessments where we agree on the design and the sponsor has to do, it's part of the agreement, has to carry out the design the way it was agreed to. But in many cases, we'll have these conversations and we can't force a sponsor to do it the way we say, but we will give recommendations. And generally when we give recommendations, there's a reason why we're giving recommendations. Something that some smaller sponsors don't always realize, and some academic sponsors may not realize is that you know sometimes when we say something at fDA that may seem a little bit odd or strange, it's not because it really is odd or strange, it's because we actually have knowledge across development programs, and sometimes although we can't say the details of how we know something or. The data behind how we know something, we do know something about an experience that perhaps another developer had. And our goal is not to have people repeat the same mistakes. So it's a good idea if FDA suggests something and you decide as a developer not to do it, to at least make sure you ask FDA really to explain to the best of its ability. Um, Because sometimes we will say, hey, we know something, but sorry, we can't give you the details. That's usually a code word for somebody else tried it, they had a problem with it, and we don't want you to repeat your mistake.
2: So to paraphrase an old ad, when FDA speaks, people should listen.
1: <laughs> I like it. I like it. That, that's true. They should listen. And if they don't understand, they should ask questions.
3: <laughs> but to sort of frame it from another angle, Peter, what you're suggesting is the goal is to get the science right to solve a clinical need. And if a developer is doing a study to do that, you create the regulatory bar that people have to exceed, but you don't want them to fail for the wrong reasons. You want to make sure they do the study properly to minimize risk and maximize the opportunity for efficacy, given the totality of knowledge that you all have on the disease and the process, trying to help the developer get it right.
1: Yeah, you said that beautifully, and that's exactly correct. The goal here is to maximize the probability of success because that's ultimately what will benefit public health the most. So, if we
0: can pull back the curtain a bit, what's the process for making the decision to approve a vaccine?
1: You know, for vaccine approvals, we really have a pretty broad mandate in terms of what we do. Many people think of what we do in terms of a vaccine approval as just going through the data that are submitted to us, be that preclinical data and or the clinical trial data. But FDA does a lot more than that. First, just to talk about the clinical data itself, we are the only regulatory agency that I know of that actually does go through line listing still and does reanalyses of data And we do that because on a certain small percentage of the time, we do find significant differences. Occasionally, we find discrepancies that have to be resolved. So that's just on the data itself. But it's more than that. Some of that data is verified a certain percentage. We go back to the source data at sites and make sure that there are not anomalies that have to be addressed and we are very concerned about manufacturing technologies and that's why before any vaccine is licensed in the United States we inspect all of the critical facilities involved in the manufacturing process that includes those that are making the vaccine as well as those that are essentially putting it into vials and finishing at the fill finish facility so all of that's done. Plus, we also make sure that there is a plan for lot release. Lot release is the process by which every batch of vaccine undergoes quality review standards. Sometimes that's done based on paper standards from the manufacturer, sometimes it's done by the manufacturer sending us samples to test in our laboratories. And then we also have to make sure that there is a pharmacovigilance plan so that there's post-market surveillance for every vaccine that we approve. So the vaccine approval process involves a fair amount for us and it is really kind of a total life cycle approach for us for vaccines, because even once a vaccine is licensed, we then keep track of it over the course of its lifespan in terms of potential adverse events through our post-market surveillance systems.
3: So Peter how do you think about a carlet of protection or other parameters that allow you to iterate on approving a vaccine or variant vaccines you know the development of it as well as the iterative need in response to the viral evolution and emerging variants how does this type of parameter like for flu help us in different vaccine development and improvement efforts
1: so correlates of protection have been critical for us to be able to make progress on vaccine development. And I think in some cases, they allow us to move relatively quickly through clinical trials in a way that we wouldn't be able to otherwise if we would have to rely on clinical endpoints. So they're very important to have. A good example here right at hand is the coronavirus pandemic, where we had clinical endpoints, which took us through to the first authorizations for emergency use while we were trying to determine correlates of protection. And although we have markers that appear to correlate with protection, such as antibody levels, I don't know that for the sars coronavirus 2 vaccines, we have what we really want in the perfect immune correlates of protection because we don't have something that tells us not just the initial protection that one is going to get from the vaccine. We don't know the length of protection, We don't know the depth of protection or the breadth of protection always with what we have currently. And although we can kind of explore it with some of the antibody-related tests, we are a little bit at a loss right now on the cellular immune side of the response. Somewhat understandable because it's somewhat more difficult to study cellular-mediated immunity in response to a vaccine. But it's probably going to be really important as we move to thinking about next-generation vaccines to handle COVID-19 because if we're going to have this around for a while, we're probably going to want to move to a next generation of vaccines that offers us a better breadth and depth of protection and potentially mucosal vaccines that can help do something about transmission better than the current generation of vaccines is doing.
2: The other issue with SARS-CoV-2 is variants and It's that much harder to come up with a correlative protection when you've got a moving target.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely correct. And I think the moving target nature of SARS coronavirus 2 has been one of the most challenging things over the past two and a half years. I mean, I think initially when this virus first came on the scene, it was kind of interesting, right? There was some kind of relief that, oh, great, at least this won't be like influenza constantly evolving ha ha ha, talk about not getting it right. You know, I was giving a talk yesterday and I put up a slide and I realized, oh my goodness, really, it kind of sunk in on me when I had a slide up that was about 10 feet tall above me that in three months time, we had gone from BA1 through BA2 onto mostly BA2.12 and BA4.5 within three months. And although one could say, oh, well, those are all Omicron variants, those are very different Omicron variants, some of which can probably pretty easily reinfect an individual who had another one of them. In other words, BA4 or 5 on someone with BA1. So the speed of this is breathtaking, and it is making things really challenging to do the correlative science that we need to try to get there. But that doesn't mean we're gonna to have to abandon it. We're gonna to have to just kind of redouble our efforts, I think.
0: So looking further at this discussion of new variants, how do you see this process in comparison with the annual choice of influenza
1: vaccines? That's a great question because I get asked a fair amount about how does SARS coronavirus 2 and influenza how do they compare to one another? You know, influenza is something we've had a long history of. We have tracking systems around the globe. We have a vaccine that in any given year is not really that perfect anyway. And we tend to get it more or less right by tracking the shift. We have two shots each year because we have Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere strain selections. It's a seasonal illness, perhaps not perfectly, but it's been something that we've been able to follow. And generally, the process is now kind of settled down upon. And we have a yearly annual vaccine. Here for sars coronavirus 2 we're in a situation that things are just evolving so fast that some of the cross protection that we sometimes see with influenza vaccines is hard to know how much of that we're going to get because of the nature of the evolution of these variants. We've had enough change that, you know, we're talking about potentially having to vaccinate people more than once a year right now. So, Although there might be some similarities, there are also a fair number of differences. And I think it remains to be seen how similar they will be or will not be. And some of that, I think, will depend on where our vaccine technologies come over the coming year or two or three in terms of being able to have better depth and breadth of protection that might last for a whole season or longer. And
3: Peter, I wonder if part of that is also our expectations of what we want the vaccines to do in terms of transmission and mild illness versus serious illness and hospitalization.
1: Lindsay, I think that's exactly right. And I think we probably will have to benchmark our expectations on what we want because we have a set of vaccines that does reasonably against serious illness and hospitalization if people would just take them including the half of Americans who haven't taken any boosters after their initial primary series, not to mention those who aren't vaccinated at all, but we have vaccines that seem to do pretty reasonably against serious illness. Granted, not perfectly in older, especially the oldest individuals who tend to need more boosters. But yes, it might be nice to have something that also ultimately could start to interrupt some of the other outcomes. I'm not saying that that's critical just at this moment, but it is pretty disruptive of life in general when we have these waves of COVID-19, it's disruptive of work, it's disruptive of school and our social environment. So it would be nice to have better vaccines that could get further down the line of, you know, not just preventing death, hospitalization or reducing emergency room visits, but also help prevent symptomatic disease and. So I say it with cross fingers and a little bit of trepidation, things that might actually prevent transmission, which would be hopefully you know, something like a mucosal vaccine, but for which there is still some work to be done.
2: Following up on that, there were very strong incentives to produce the original COVID vaccines. What sorts of incentives are there now for a developer to produce even better vaccines?
1: I think the incentives are much smaller. There are now kind of more routine grants that are out there rather than a large government effort. And I think this is a good opportunity to just mention that there is a certain amount of COVID fatigue that has actually affected the research community, in my opinion. And it's affected the funders of the research community as well. And that, I think, does present a challenge here because the way we ended up with vaccines rapidly that had pretty nice effectiveness was by getting a lot of different players into the game and having them work very diligently in development. And that happened because there was funding there for that to happen, and there was potentially a market. Right now, on both sides, there's concerns. I think there's concerns that there's not a lot of funding for this, And there's, I think, a certain concern that we may have been complacent with things. But if there's one thing I will leave you with is that I would not become complacent around SARS coronavirus 2 because I think it still has the potential to throw us some curveballs as it goes about its daily business of trying to survive as a good virus and throw off new curveballs.
3: So, Peter, isn't this a fundamental problem in the vaccine marketplace itself, where the ROI, return on investment for developers and companies, is challenging in the routine circumstance? SARS-CoV-2 is an exceptional circumstance, but as the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine space starts to equilibrate with the historical vaccine space, will we be in a position where vaccines are an afterthought? And therefore, the economic incentive will follow that.
1: I think, Lindsay, you bring up an incredibly poignant thought that unfortunately, yes, it's possible that we could end up with COVID-19 vaccines alongside other vaccines where there's not a lot of attention paid to the advancement of the science because there's not the kind of return on investment there. But again, I hope that's not where we go because when you look at the breadth of the havoc that this particular virus and other potential viruses could lead to. I think we really have to reevaluate how we think about vaccines in our armamentarium as not just kind of these inexpensive measures that are nice to have around um, to really critical measures that we need to help protect our society from the pathogens that can emerge and then undoubtedly will emerge that can disrupt our everyday lives Taking many lives and causing a lot of suffering. So, I think we may need to kind of reevaluate what our value proposition is on these vaccines. I don't have the full solution here. I don't have the pocketbook to (laughs) to bankroll this, but I think governments may need to be thinking about how much we value the vaccines that we use and that we will need to use in the future to protect us against emerging infectious diseases.
0: So COVID isn't the first disease for which the FDA has considered emergency authorization of vaccines. How has this process been different?
1: So the Emergency Use Authorization Authority, which really came into being after the terrorist attacks of 9-11, has been considered for other emergency situations, but none of them have affected the breadth of people across the nation that COVID-19 has. So we have here an incredibly large deployment that was just of an entirely different scale of things that we contemplated before. Before we contemplated use in relatively small populations, sometimes populations not even on the shores of the United States mainly, right? But in the case of COVID-19, we have the first very, very wide scale deployment under emergency use authorization of these vaccines as opposed to for a very niche problem in a smaller population within the country or overseas. So it's very different in terms of the scale and the magnitude of the rollout. And it's staggering when you look, for instance, at the number of adverse events reports that we've had in the past year or two that outnumber by far those previously because of the breadth of this rollout and the reporting requirements. So quite different in terms of the magnitude.
2: I wonder if the FDA response to the Ebola outbreak and the very successful rollout of vaccines in Ebola endemic areas provided something of a blueprint, though, in many ways, including the development of some of the platforms that have been used for the current SARS-CoV-2 vaccines.
1: Absolutely. And obviously, you know, one of the vaccine platforms that was used was one of the platforms used for an Ebola vaccine. I think the other piece that was really reassuring from the Ebola outbreaks was the fact that you could do clinical trials in real time when you had a major outbreak. I know that right now that sounds like, gosh, this guy's just like saying motherhood and apple pie. But when Ebola broke out, there was a lot of controversy about whether you could do randomized clinical trials to get the kind of data that you really wanted with the vaccines. And I think ultimately, although there were clearly challenges, that was demonstrated. And I think that gave us confidence when these vaccines had to be rolled out in the clinical trial setting that those trials could be done and that ultimately we could roll these out under emergency use here in the United States.
3: So, Peter, what aspects of the EUA process has worked particularly well and which aspects have been frustrating that we should pay little attention to and how to do better going forward?
1: You know, I thought about this a lot. I actually think the EUA authority is one of the better authorities in terms of how it's been crafted because of the amount of flexibility and agility that it gives us. I think in terms of advantages, it allows us to essentially set the bar where we need to, depending on the nature of the threat. It allows us to be very agile about making changes to what we have in terms of both labeling, indications all aspects of use of the product based on emerging data. And so we can make those changes even in the matter of a course of a day or two if we have to. So that's not the way we can do things with normal medical products. And so all of those things are really nice pieces of authority. I do think that some might say that, well, there have been some challenges in knowing how low can the bar be. And that's some of the challenges here is like, what is the level of evidence that we should have? We tried to solve that by putting out guidance on what we expected for vaccines for emergency use authorization. But that's probably one of the areas that somebody could say is a little bit of the weakness because the standard of may be effective and the known and potential benefits outweigh the known and potential risks. It's pretty fuzzy. And so you could have a pretty low bar there if you want, or you can make that bar higher if you'd like. So that's probably the weakest piece of the authority. But I want to make it clear Our emergency use authorization has been really an incredibly important authority for us because it has allowed us both on the vaccine side as well obviously as on the therapeutic side to really respond in real time to an ever changing set of circumstances and particularly with SARS coronavirus 2 and the emerging variants and the emerging data where we've you know, basically almost every week, there's some new piece of data that has come out or every month, we have been able to adjust for that information in order to best promote and protect public health.
0: Thank you, Peter, for joining us today. And thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.